You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. said you're in the fifth and final class at least for right now of the faith and culture series and I know this is really atypical uh, I thought it'd be good to just have a discussion rather than me or Derek talking at you so I asked Derek to come uh, speak tonight after the five o'clock service so he's here for that and because he got in really early and since he recently wrote a chapter on millennial ministry to millennials I thought it'd be good if he joined us for the discussion so Anyway, so um, feel free to speak up. I really do. Uh, I do want this to be a discussion, uh, not just Derek talking at you. Uh, <laughs> want to process it with you. But if you, you know, say you want to ask Derek about um, his view on some random something, like, I don't know, politics or whatever, I'll probably try to bring it back to. Uh, bring it back to the center. So anyway, so let's try to move in the direction of ministry to millennials. So, all right, well, first, um, Derek, tell us about yourself. Who are you? Should we like you? Um, what do you do? Um, man, that middle one, should we like you? It's always, <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, I'm, uh, I'm Derek Schmally. I'm a grad student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, right now, I'm doing my PhD, uh, finishing up coursework in systematic theology. Uh, before that, though, I, I basically just did college and young adult uh, ministry at a Presbyterian church in Southern California, and worked with high schoolers before that and junior highs before that. So I, I basically have just done a lot of youngster ministry, um, and, and now I'm in grad school. Uh, besides that, I do a little bit of writing, and I'm married to one wife. Uh, who is wonderful, and she she supports me in everything that I do, and I couldn't do it without her. And uh, she, yeah, she's an essential ministry partner in this whole thing. Uh, but she will be at the five later. Great, you guys can meet Great. her then if you'd like. To. Uh, but yeah, anyways, those are random facts. I don't know if any of that contributes to you liking me, but um, yeah, that's okay. In a nutshell. Um, well, so. So for the class, like why, just to hear from a few of you, so you saw the title of the class, Faith and Culture and Ministry to Millennials. What brought you here? If anyone, if I have anyone three is. millennials, all in college. So. Three millennials in Two. college? <laughs> Probably have like 12 home kids, like, you know, under 24, 25 that work for us and with us. So. In your office? Yeah, yeah, I want to figure out how to, yeah, to yeah. reach them better. Yeah, I um, just realized. Yeah, I was about to, something similar. I just realized that I think every millennial that's at my office is an atheist. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? Mm-hmm. Last week when we were discussing the, you know, the Reformation and the 500th anniversary. Yeah, party. Shocked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's the one that's not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was <laughs> 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 Running at 10 percent, y'all. I, <laughs> All right, well, so that's helpful. So, so guys, what comes in your mind when you, like, give me some adjectives. When you hear the word millennial, 
Entitled. <laughs> Entitled. Okay. Hardworking and generous. Okay. So opposite. <laughs> yeah. Very independent. Okay. In the sense that I know a lot of entrepreneurial millennials, like it's in not wanting to work for somebody else. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think that's true. I would say considerate of some things and completely inconsiderate of others. You know, like a very considerate to this this group of ideals and then and then completely against sort of this other group of ideals. Hmm. I always think of technology, you know, and being empowered by that because millennials are very, you know, they they know how to they they're very empowered by it having access to so much information and technology and being able to use that and manipulate it in ways that I don't know. The previous generations. Right. I mean, I, you know, I'm not on Facebook and that's, you know, that that's now putting me at way behind in terms of just marketing and trying to run a business and things like that that I never imagined, you know, so that's what I think of when I think uh -huh. of millennials, having access to that type of, of new, new way of working. I think they're crippled by technology on the mm -hmm. other hand, other side also. Just, just the dependence on technology versus personal relationships. Rather than embodied physical, mm -hmm. right? Real people real relationships. People, yeah. yeah. I think when I've had like interns, I think in different jobs, my experience was always they were, in some ways, kind of like what you were saying, Liz, that um, very conscious, conscious of things. You know, in uh, wanted to help people wanted to were very involved in that way in terms of kind of philanthropic causes but then probably on the flip side maybe which is interesting with the technology part but not particularly resourceful you know like I get asked questions and I'd be like google it because that's what I'm going to do before I give you the answer just google it and find out what the answer is you yeah. know what I mean yeah so kind of crippled a little bit about technology in some ways maybe well, all right, so Derek, are these, in your experience of ministry and, like, thinking about this, are these accurate? Well, what is a millennial? Yeah, so that's, a, that's, a, yeah, that's one of those big, awkward things is that we're dealing with basically a 20-year 20, 20 age category. Uh, people will chart millennials as being born anywhere between, uh, say, like, 1980, 1980 to maybe 2000 or, like, 1995 or whatever. So you're dealing with, like, a, a generation that's the largest since the boomers, right? So characterizing, and, and even within that generation, you've got this gradation of, you've got older millennials uh, who are like my age or, or a little bit older, so 34, 35, down to maybe a 22-year-old. Which feels right? like a big difference. Yeah, so yeah. So, so a lot of those characteristics, I mean, there's a difference between me. I mean, I got, I got my first cell phone in high school, but it was the oldest dumb phone that you, you can play Snake on. I don't even remember that game. Versus kids now who the very first phone they had was an iPhone like 3 or something, uh, which is just technological, the capabilities, it's, it's, your interactive experience is radically different. Um, and so that's part of the thing. A, a lot of the things that you guys are flagging, they're all things you could say about some segment or sector of the millennial like generation because it is such a wide um, wide variety in that sense but the technology thing is very big that's actually really that's one of the I think that's one of the most distinctive uh, 
difference is uh, for this generation, uh, for that generation uh, category. Um, the entitlement thing is, yeah, I have mixed feelings on that one. It, it, it's true and not true. Um, but I yeah. feel a little offended that whoever said it. Yeah. <laughs> She's a millennial too, so I yeah, I mean, there, there, it is and it isn't. It's like on certain things, yes, we expect certain things, but also we were raised to expect right. certain things. And Isn't so it possible that, that it's it's more overprotected or spoiled as opposed to entitled? When I think of it in terms of jobs, yeah. you know, I have a sister who's nine years younger than me, so she's right at the end of the millennial, and I'm here to the beginning. And I've, you know, charted one course, and she's been doing her own thing, but kind of still expects to be able to pay the bills <laughs> by not Mm -hmm. so. My experience with it in the workplace is that there's less of a sense that, you know, my generation knows, I think there's a, there's a period where you pay your dues. Mm -hmm. And I think that period, the patience for that is much smaller yeah. than that group. Yeah. You want to have a voice much earlier, mm -hmm. right? We were trained to have a voice much earlier. Our, our, our actually, our schools have trained us to have voices much earlier. You know, when you read a book, okay, well, it's not necessarily what, is, what does this person say? It's like, oh, wow, how do you feel about it? What do you think it means? earlier than that, who cares what you think it means? What does it mean? And then we move on and, and evaluate it. But so you've got that just in the educational system, never mind the fact that we've got, yes, Facebook and Twitter and all these all these other means of expressing ourselves in which the main point of these things is self-expression, which, which trains you to think that that is, you know, my voice matters very quickly. And in which case when you get into a work context, um, the you know, be seen and not heard for a while until you learn the ropes is, it's like, no, I, you hired me to be a contributing member. I will contribute immediately. Um, that is less, that's less the mindset. Um, so yeah, th those are all, I mean, you guys putting your finger on a lot of different things that are very natural. All right, so, so that's helpful. So you, you, you mentioned self-expression, which I think is kind of getting into your chapter a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Um, at least as far as expressive individualism. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so before we like go directly to uh, expressive individualism, you have a you have a quote, and this actually. So I titled the class. If you, I don't think you know. I titled it "Faith as an Option for Millennials." Uh, um, so you just wrote uh, this one-off sentence: the story of moving from an age where faith in God is the default to the point where it is an option was and is a fascinating tour through intellectual history. So you're describing a book that you read, Charles Taylor's A Secular Age. Mm -hmm. But can you talk about that a little bit? What? So when we're thinking of faith as an option for millennials, what do we, why do you say faith is optional? And yeah. describe that for me. Yeah, so, and this is one of those places where I, I tried to, so Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age, it's massive, he tries to do a bunch of things, gives kind of like a, like a tour through history, intellectual history, the last 500 years, talking about how we moved from faith as default. Everybody believed in God. You don't not believe in God. If anything, you may be thought of a different kind of God who people in other lands believed in because they're heathens. Like that was, I mean, you know, you have the Muslims over there, and then there's Christendom, but we're all in Christendom, and so and it was just the default. And then 500 years later, we are here where okay, well, you might go to a church, but your neighbor goes to, um, like, a, like a, you know, a, a yogi or, you know, your other 
friend goes to brunch, and that's their spiritual experience on time. And like that's just that's where we are now. And so it is one it is one among many options that that, that people choose. Um, and, and it really every and the thing is everybody's choice is now a choice, right? It's even if you were raised in it, you have to choose to stay in it. You have to there, so there's a there's there's no a lot of the a lot of the ties and a lot of the inertia of maintaining a faith option. You can't get away from that. Maintaining your, your religious stance, um, there is it's irreducibly more choicey, choice oriented. Uh, volitional, uh, you can't just roll into it the way you used to uh, in previous, even in previous generations. But millennials inherit that from, you know, our parents dealt with this. This was this is still our this is actually still our parents' uh, reality, and even before that, more than, uh, that was still part of it as well. But we're just a little bit further down the timeline, right? Uh, in, in in that. Um, Things have become more radically destabilized, and the the options have just multiplied, multiplied and to the nth degree. Uh, and so, a lot of this started a lot of this started back, you know, in the last few hundred years of intellectual history. And then, a really significant moment was probably back around the 60s, 70s, which is when uh, this view—not really a view, but this ethos—that uh, some sociologists expressive individualism really really hit the hit the bloodstream and really was the shape of, of American and kind of Western culture of uh, yeah so what do you mean by expressive individualism? yeah yeah I'm trying to think put the, I, I wrote I wrote a definition there in the book. I'm trying to remember <laughs> how I summarized it but um, but at the center I, you have this there I'm trying to think because the, the definition the guys have I wrote expressive individualism which I you know I think of it as Right. I, I don't know if anyone's on the board of the physics, uh, so you know, don't be offended if you wrote this line. But I think of it in practical terms. Uh, when the Pizzitz launched, the Pizzitz is a the Pizzitz is a loft building downtown, uh, and the ad was uh, "Live Your Story," yes. right? That in and of itself is expressive individualism, right? You need this loft to express your deepest self. You need you need the, and Brandon does too, right? I've been just mouth-watering over the iPhone 10. I haven't yet gotten it, but I might. Anyway, I need this iPhone 10 to help me be more fully me. What? Yeah. I need to sort of unlock that core, and that's the expressive individualism, right? right? So everything is sort of expressing that deeper self. And I use my clothes, my iPhone, my yeah. loft. Your loft, your car. Your hair color, all these different things—they're—they're all—they're all ways of, of of displaying to the world who you are deep inside, uh, and and actually not just that, discovering that there's also an element of self-discovery involved, <coughs> and so um, relig religious options get blended into that uh, post 60s and 70s. Really, that that becomes like a major default way of thinking about my faith. Right. My faith becomes my spirituality. Right. It becomes either a way, and if you hold on to the faith of your youth, it's you could really believe it, or it could just be a way of you talking about the fact that, like, I really like being, you know, who my parents raised me to be, and I want to feel in touch with my roots. Not necessarily that I believe these doctrines, but 
it's more like I'm, you know, it's a way of saying, you know, I'm Southern, or whatever it is, to, to go to the Baptist church when you go back home to visit your parents, or whatever it is. And so that's that bleeds into our conception of, of faith. And all of that, that affects everybody in society right now. But millennials are just, at, they're at the tail end of a lot of these developments, and so they inherit them. And they inherit them under the pressure of uh, greater consumer consumer um, uh, choice advancements, as well as, again, the technological advancements. It really is, I mean, looking at the way your phones work, that really is, a, it, it's, it's psychologically formative, right? The fact that I, I had well, my first iPhone, or my first uh, iPod, mm -hmm. the fact that I had it, it could have like a thousand songs on it at once, um, that just impacts your psychology of having things at hand and your options at hand and you know the fact that it would take me five minutes to pick my song that I wanted to listen to for the five minute drive I was about to take so <laughs> yeah and and just it would take me forever but there was this that that impacts your view of choices and your view of your time and your view of so all that bleeds into the way you think about religion and faith and and um Finding one that fits you, mm -hmm. if it fits you at all, uh, and yeah, so that's that's one of the that's part of the, the the air that we breathe. Yeah. So, all right. So before we press on, any I don't know any questions or comments that have Can arisen. I have a question about that. So, yeah. do you think that part of the reason why millennials or just people in general are so open to different choices is because sort of the past people have kind of been phoning in religion like like in the sense that you're saying like I was raised this way I should be this thing I don't necessarily really believe it but this is how I feel comfortable on Sunday you know I mean do you think that I mean and it's my impression a little bit that millennials are sort of seeking truths and don't don't like anything that's fake or you know I mean not that not that I as a whatever I am Gen X or like fakeness either, but like, do right. you think that it's it's they feel like that a lot of that has been faked or faked that, that that may be part of? Yeah, that's definitely one piece of the pie. That's definitely a piece of the pie. Um, it, you know, there's also just the element of needing to find my own authentic, my own authentic spirituality is true to me, and and really an unwillingness to just have it handed. Handed on to them yeah. and just accept it. Has to be self-discovered. Yeah, yeah, okay. and 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 that fits that fits perfectly if you if you have been in a context where a lot of the religion religion you've been around is just religiosity and kind of fake and has that air that those two just go hand in hand. So yeah. it's not an either or there. What you're pointing to, that's that's definitely a part of the pie, and it just it fits perfectly with with those other trends that, that self-discovery element. So. Yeah, that's, that's great. One thing that's kind of the flip side of that that some of what you were saying made me think of is um, sort of the, not the danger, but that sometimes I think in, you know, you have so many choices and how do I use these things to express my inner self with spirituality, Christianity in particular, you know, you I think sometimes people can start to think, oh, I need this to fit my needs and my wants of what I think I am and how the world affects me, rather than kind of 
the action or, I mean, just going back to the word of what, well, this is really what God said. I mean, does that make sense kind of? That, and I think that's probably a tension in there too because, you know, that's where it can be really easy to get maybe disillusioned with religion is because, or Christianity in particular, because you're saying, well, this is what my Christianity is and this is what my Christianity is. Yeah, I want a faith that will do this for right. me. Or, and, it, and when it doesn't, <laughs> and it doesn't do that immediately on right. the time frame that you were expecting, um, well, then it's that much easier to get burned out or, uh, yeah, disaffected. So, yeah, that's it's certainly something, I mean, I struggle with it, but I, I think everybody probably does to some extent. Yeah. yeah well, absolutely. you know, I've heard a lot of millennials, you know, are, are discussed in and around kind of a moral relativism as their, their viewpoint of the world. And so the absolutes and kind of black and whites that the gospel provides and Christianity gives us, uh, I, I, I've had people say that is a clash that needs to be reconciled when there's so many options and so many choices in how do you find spirituality or come to the Lord or whatever the case may be. I don't know if that's you know, an experience no, or... It, it, it isn't. It, it, it isn't. It isn't. It's the weirdest thing. So I've I can't remember which one of you was saying earlier that what they, there's a there's a real conscientiousness about some things and a complete you know disregard of others or there's so um, I I, I, had, I had apologetic conversations with a series of they're now in their 20s but when they were at the tail end of their high school years uh, or actually freshman in college we went through Tim Keller's The Reason for God and a bunch of them were Christians and then one of them was staunch atheist. And we got to the chapter on the, on moral relativism, and this kid was just willing to eat the uh, eat the conclusion that everything is relative. He was totally willing, like, well, I guess, yeah, I guess according to you, that is, that would be the case. And, and we, no matter what reductio we threw at him, like, okay, but you realize that means that like napalming babies is subjectively wrong. Or, well, I mean, it sounds bad to me, but I, I suppose. And he was just willing to do that. The flip side, and I'd have this, I'd have, I'd have that conversation before. The flip side is uh, another kid. We'd have those same conversations about absolute morality, whatever. Uh, but he was so dead sure, so dead sure that his gay brother should be able to get married. And I, I was just like, okay, but so is it? Is it absolutely wrong for us to forbid forbid that? Like, is it wrong, like absolutely, for that to be by law? Illegal, like by law, just forbidden. And and he's like, uh, like I was trying to point out, you, you have to pick one. Either this is wrong, or you know, either this is wrong and there's a god, or some moral realism, or it's not. In which case, why are you so angry, right? And so, all that to say, millennials actually have very strong moral instincts, and some of them will argue for them very clearly. Uh, in terms of, in terms of their, their, you know, whether it comes to sex, you know, the consent ethic, or again, the absolute priority of self-expression, those kinds of things. There is a, there is a sexual morality. Actually, there's a great article uh, by Alistair Roberts up at the Gospel Coalition worth looking up. It's called the New Sexual Morality, and he points out that the relativism narrative doesn't quite hold. What it is, it's not relativism. It's a shift in priorities. That said. There is certain relativism that goes on in terms of okay, well, how can I say my culture is better, or how can so there's there's inconsistencies is really what there is, and so um, 
that's just one of those weird paradoxes. It kind of depends on which one you get and uh, which conversation you're having. So, sorry that was a ramble, but that it, this is what you'll see. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's one of the paradoxes of our age and millennials that they have such strong moral convictions about certain things, and they really don't have a narrative underneath it to substantiate it or... I think that's being lost, right? In in many cases, it seems like they're borrowing from Christianity and yet also distorting it. You know, it's kind of mixed. Yeah, and this is obviously the, the irreligious ones and so forth. If you, if you run across like a, like a Christian millennial, obviously they're going to have some moral instincts about a big narrative to put it in and so on and so forth. But, um, yeah. Or generic, or even just kind of generic religious holdover material, like a good God, etc. And then very fuzzy on the details. Uh, so. Do you think that part of it, especially with younger millennials, and I'm thinking of like Twitter and other avenues where we're conditioned to not think critically, like we've kind of lost our our patience or ability to think through arguments and reasons and think critically instead of just having these little sound bites of information and so we get conditioned to think in that kind of manner where we're not really thinking through uh, taking the time to think through. I, I don't know. Do you, do you think that that is something that's happening especially with younger millennials and then that plays into everything including religion and yeah, sloganizing, yeah, that that's, you know, meme culture, <laughs> you know, the, the argument being conducted with, you know, image graphics instead of, you know, a long paragraph uh, where you've got premises and a conclusion, uh, that, that's that's affecting everybody, right, that's at everybody at this point, uh, you know, this is your brain and this is your brain on your phone, and this is all memes over here, um, that, that's everybody, but it also, again, you're going to, you're probably just going to see that more in millennials because they're younger and this has been part of their environment longer. It's just been a part of their environment longer. So it's not, not, even, it's not necessarily their fault. This is just, again, part of the educational system and part of the technological environment that we've been raised in. Um, it has not cultivated certain patterns of thought. Uh, and it works actively against it. And so, um, but again, it's not, it's not all of them. Obviously, you can't paint with too wide a brush. You're, <coughs> They go to college, they write papers, they read books. Actually, they read more. I think that the popularity of book reading is to higher among the lines. It, it might be higher in terms I was reading something in terms of at least narratives and things like that. Now, the kinds of arguments that, make, that are made, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but, uh, like, as a like philosophical argument, you know, critical, um, you know, logical forms, maybe not as much. But, so they, it is a way of thinking. It's, it's shifted. Actually, I'm going to recommend another Alistair Roberts article. This one's on his own blog. I think it's called Rob Bell and the Ad Man's Gospel. And it's really, it actually is looking more at, not necessarily Rob Bell, although he figures in, but it's actually a way of looking at the way um, uh, commercials and advertising and the way that has actually shaped some of the way that we reason and the way that we process information in terms of these kind of sound bite and motive arguments whose persuasive force is not drawn from the force of the argument, but it's drawn from the force of, of you know, in a sense, general impressions 
Impressionistic arguments that, that fit well initially and then may, may or may not hold up under scrutiny. Do you see more um, millennial Christians going, uh, turning more to contemporary churches? I feel like I see a lot of the millennials choosing more contemporary style churches than more traditional churches. Is that a trend that you're seeing or, or is that just a, a, a perception? It prob- probably is. I mean, I, I know it was harder for me to pull them in at, uh, at my Presbyterian church than it was when I was, you know, working in the youth ministry at the, at the big non-denom uh, contemporary-ish church. Um, but these aren't absolutes because some people, uh, especially certain kind of on the more, say, educated and uh, whatever range, uh, are kind of re-gravitating towards traditional churches. It's not the big, it's not the big movement that some people want to sell it as, but it is there. So some some are cycling back to more liturgical tra- traditional churches because they feel there is something missing in some of the contemporary churches. But probably generically, it's good, generally it's going to be easier to get one through the door at at a at a, at a more contemporary church. It's just, I mean. That's what I've seen. It, it may swing around. There may be a craving for churches that feel more churchy. I don't know. But even that, the danger there is whether or not it's a it's a feature of kind of nostalgia or or whether it's like a deep spiritual longing. You know, it, it's hard to it's hard to parse. It's mixed. Sorry, yeah. rambling. No, no, you're. But that's a good segue to go to where I think. Well, I, go. yeah. So we have like six-ish minutes if we're oh, wow. faithful to our time. One <laughs> thing I'll. I want to make sure I get to, I want to quote your sentence here about ministry to millennials, uh, and I want to spend most of our five minutes there, but I, can, can you speak to this at all uh, before we get there? I think it's easy for us as Christians to sit in here, and so we're talking about secularism and millennials and expressive individualism and that sort of thing. Yeah. It's easy for us to think of us as the Christians in here and the secular people out there. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Are we secular just as much as everyone else? Can you can you tease that out a little bit for me? Like, is there any? Should we realize that we're in this just as much as everyone else? Can I can think, you speak to that at all? <laughs> I think, I, yeah, I think you you're, you're lead point in the answer there. Um, but yeah, <laughs> which is good. I mean, what I want to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, all of this points to the fact that this this impacts the way we process our own faith, right? I mean, I everybody to some degree has had their beliefs destabilized by the, you know, the atheist, you know, I think I write in there, um, your neighbor who's an unbeliever, uh, maybe an unbeliever, but they are living in a place where their own way of believing that there's nothing there, um, is impacted by the fact that they do see believing neighbors who live, you know, plausible lives in front of them, uh, who believe different things from them, and they think, well, maybe, what if they're right? And, and vice versa, we we have some of those lingering doubts of just, okay, well, I mean, I, I go to church, I live my life this way, etc., but, you know, the parents of little Johnny on, on, on my child's <coughs> soccer team, they seem to live pretty fulfilled, normal, etc., lives, and they believe something completely different. And, you know, there, so there's a, there's a destabilizing factor in everybody's faith. 
uh, fragilized factor, and and that impacts the way that we process um, our own our own uh, engagement with it, and, and that that choice feature again, it has to be. It, it, it's not default for anybody anymore. Even if you do continue to believe, you believe in a different way, and uh, you believe it under the pressure of the current age. And so, looking at millennials. Um, I think part of what's helpful about that is the fact that they're just like, the way I put it was, they're, they're just like everybody else, just a little more so. So if you're looking at them, you're really, you're looking at the impacts that the culture is probably having on you uh, and your family. And, and so this is, it's not, yeah, it's definitely not an us versus them. It's, I mean, in my case, it's definitely not because I am them. But <laughs> the, that's, that's, it, it, it's looking at a mirror, it's looking at a mirror of what, the air we're all breathing in is does to us, for better or for worse, because there are positives. I'm not sure we got to a lot of them, but there are, <laughs> there are definitely positives. Every generation has its has its ups and downs, and that's just that's something to be aware of. There's no golden age, no golden generation. Right. So the point is, where what Charles Taylor, the philosopher that he mentioned, and historian, um, what he's pointed out is that we're all secular, right? Because secular isn't what he calls the subtraction of religion. A subtraction theory is it's this multiplicity of options. And we all, no matter who you are, we all feel that pull uh, and the, the multiplicity of choices. We can, we can at least conceive of leaving the faith, right? Which in prior times, that just wasn't really the case. Um, well, so I think one of the most important things, and we haven't, uh, we've run out of time, but um, <laughs> I just want to quote this and hear from uh, you if you have anything or maybe questions. So he has, Derek has uh, a couple of pages in here about ministry to millennials. One thing uh, is he says make space for Thomas, and he's referring to doubting Thomas in the Bible. Um, so he says, likewise, churches interested in reaching millennials need to become skilled in that sort of patience that graciously makes space for the questioner, the cross-pressured unbeliever. The church must not be a place prone to overreaction or quick to provide conversation-stopping cliches, which inadvertently produce reactive questioners. Questions and dialogue must be welcome. Uh, so I could go on, but um, you want to say any more? Like, any final word for us, like... You know, we're really challenging how do we reach millennials? I don't know, summary thought, and then maybe questions, and you all can stick around and talk to them. Make it a hopeful word. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, <laughs> it's really, really, really where I end. Yeah, I mean, that's the point. Every, every, every generation has its challenges, and none of them are bigger than God. He's always, he saved, he saved people in the 80s, saved people in the 70s. Uh, he saved people, he can save people now. You know, he's always, he, he works good under pressure. And, and the gospel is always the power of salvation, the power of God and salvation. And so really having confidence in that and just the patience, though, to not be worried or freaked out that this conversation isn't going well with so-and-so. Just patiently love, patiently be you as a Christian around people. And, um, and God will do surprising things. Yes. Yeah. I think that goes to like our, our tagline at the Advent is to have a, a living, daring confidence in God's grace through the gospel. Really, I wonder what it would look like if we prayerfully really 
live that out? What does it mean to have a confidence in the gospel um, rather than to be overreactive and fearful? Well, um, I don't know about you, but I process by reading. So if, if you want a couple of recommendations to um, that are easier reads, so I don't have the book on me, I don't think. James K. Smith wrote the book um, How Not to Be Secular. So How Not to Be Secular. And then if you want to read Derek's chapter, it's in this book called Our Secular Age. I would say email Brandon at cathedraladvent.com for a list of all of the books and articles. Yes, or if you want to get coffee and process with me, um, since millennials like coffee. Uh, and you care. It's true. And you can hear Derek tonight uh, after the 5 o'clock in Clingman Commons. There's a dinner and a talk. He will be talking on how the Reformation speaks into our modern identity. Um, well, we're out of time. Feel free to uh, feel free to ask Derek any questions. Yeah. Sister says to uh, Sister says, I'll do it. Uh, let us pray then. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your guidance. We thank you that you are so much bigger than, than anything we can possibly conceive of and you will bring us forward uh, to you. We uh, pray for all who are here gathered. We pray for their families and uh, as they perhaps struggle or are concerned about the millennials in their lives, Lord, just remind us through your Holy Spirit that you are in control and that, uh, that you, you will make things well. We pray all this in your Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.